Okay, well, we'll go ahead and get started. There'll probably be others join us here in just a few minutes. Probably about the time we get started, they'll come. But anyway, um, yeah, there they come. Anyway, um, go ahead and be finding your place in your Bibles in Acts chapter number 16. Acts chapter 16 is where we'll be at today. And while you're finding your place, let's go ahead and we'll go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. We do thank you for the day that you've given us, Lord. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to be in church together. And Lord, for everyone who has uh, made their way out today. Lord, we just thank you so much for your word. And we ask you, Lord, that you would uh, be with us as we get into it this morning and we study it for just a little while and discuss it for a little while. I just pray that uh, it would be a help and a blessing to each person that's here. I pray that you would encourage hearts, Lord. I just pray you draw folks closer to you. Help us, Lord, as we endeavor to be a light and a witness in this place that you've put us at. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone here today that don't know you as their Savior, that today would be the day that they would uh, put their faith and trust in you. Lord, just God and direct me as I teach. Be with those who are still on their way out, Lord, that you'd watch over them. And we love you and we thank you. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name. And amen. Okay, so we've been going through the book of Acts and kind of uh, verse by verse or story by story. And we've been watching God build his church. We've been watching the Holy Spirit working through uh, his people. And the, one of the things that keeps sticking out to us as we look at this is that God is using everyday people, uh, everyday events, just ordinary things to guide and to direct his people and to grow his church. And last week, what we were looking at was how God guided uh, how God guided Paul and Silas and uh, their their mission team or ministry team uh, into the direction he wanted them to go. Uh, Paul was content to just continue uh, preaching and teaching and starting churches and planting churches in that region of Galatia and uh, in what was called Asia there and staying in the Middle East. Uh, but God had bigger plans for Paul than what he had for himself. And anyway... <clears throat> And anyway, as um, Paul was seeking God's guidance and God's will, he, um, as he was seeking God's guidance and God's will in this, uh, God was directing his steps. And we would like, I believe all of us would like to have God's will in our lives. We would like to know that the, the way that we're going, the path that we're walking is ordered by God, is directed by him. And a lot of times we put too much stress and emphasis on ourselves to figure out God's will. And so what we were looking at last week was how God was uh, slowly uh, shaping and guiding Paul and putting him where he wanted him to be. Uh, he, uh, As Paul would go in one direction, he'd have no peace about it. God uh, would not allow him to go that direction. He'd try a different direction. God would say no and Doors continued closing, and God led him to uh, all the way over to the Aegean Sea and as far west as he could go. And then he uh, gave him a dream. And in that dream, there was a man from Macedonia who was asking Paul, come and share the gospel with us. And so that expanded Paul's horizons, if you will. That uh, gave him a larger, uh, a larger vision than he had previously had. Rather than being confined to the one little area, he was seeing new frontiers. He was seeing uh, Europe before him and all of these other places. And uh, as we looked at the way that God was guiding Paul, each step of the way there was uh, places to get 
maybe discouraged or bogged down because uh, we don't like to wait, right? Everybody with me on that? We don't like to wait. And so in times of waiting, Paul could have gotten discouraged. He could have uh, felt a little dejected, but all throughout it, he was still looking to God, still trusting God. And so God used that waiting time to cause Paul to um, cause Paul to have to search a little bit, cause Paul to have to listen a little bit, cause Paul to be to the place where he was seeking after God and receptive to God's will, rather than just being constantly busy, <clears throat> constantly busy in ministry and in teaching and in preaching. So there was just that time of uncertainty where he had to get close to God. And I find that happens a lot of the times in our lives as well, that God will use times of uncertainty to cause us to seek after him and to draw us closer to himself. And that's what he did with Paul. And so anyway, we we looked at this directing uh, of Paul and of his ministry partners last week, and we had gotten down to uh, the place where they were in Philippi. God directed them to this city of Philippi. It was a Roman colony. And uh, that means that the Romans were in control. It was basically a Roman outpost in Greek. It would be like stepping out of Greece and into Rome temporarily, okay? I know in, uh, and maybe this is a bad illustration, I don't know. But I know in the United States, in New York, there is an area of New York that is called Chinatown. Anyone ever heard of that, seen it on television? And so for, for a moment, you can step out of the United States, out of uh, you know, New York, and you can be in surrounded by Chinese culture and Chinese people and Chinese buildings and writings and all these different things. Well, that's kind of what it was like whenever you came into a Roman colony. It was reigned by Roman government. It was inhabited by Roman people, and they were there in Philippi, and this is where God had led uh, Paul to. But as he was there, uh, there was not very many Jews in that area, uh, Paul's manner was typically to go amongst the Jews because they already had a foundation in the Scripture. They already had a baseline in the Word, and he could build off of that. They knew Moses and the prophets, and he could uh, bring them back to that and point them to Christ from that. But now as he came into this Roman colony, there was no synagogue. There was no meeting of the Jews uh, except for a small group of people on the riverbank. And he went out and he... Uh, spent time in their prayer meeting, I guess, and got to know them and talk with them and shared the gospel with them. And a woman by the name of Lydia was saved, and that was his first convert in Europe. And uh, after him dreaming about a man in Macedonia calling for him, his first convert wasn't a man, it was a woman. I thought that was interesting. And so he was still looking for that person, right? But anyway, uh, we talked about last week how even though God had directed Paul to this place, there were so many things that would have been uh, maybe calls for Paul to question or even to doubt, because Paul wasn't having the crowds that he was used to having. He wasn't having the response he was used to having. He wasn't uh, around the cultures that he was used to being around, and all of these things would have brought room for doubt and for uncertainty and for him to question God's will. And we find whenever God leads us to some place that a lot of times there's going to be a time of testing mm-hmm. after we get there, right. uh, a time of testing our our commitment. And uh, what we have to realize is if God led us there, we have to trust the process. Right. We have to trust what he is taking us through. 
It's often been said, don't question in the night what God has showed you in the light. Mm-hmm. Y'all ever heard that before? Yeah. Okay. It's not original to me, so I'm not taking credit for that one. <laughs> but anyway, that's that's what we're tempted to do. And a lot of times whenever hardship or struggles or uh, whenever situations don't meet our expectations, we begin to question God's leading. We begin to question if we missed it, if we're out of God's will. And so as he was going about, he does have... Uh, a few converts, but not a whole lot going on. And the last thing that we were looking at, I know I'm a little lengthy in my introduction. You guys are used to that. But anyway, uh, the last thing that we were looking at last week was that there was a woman who was possessed of a demon, had a spirit of divination that was following after them and was proclaiming, these men are teaching us the way of salvation uh, these men are sent by God, basically. And so the things that she was saying was true, but that wasn't the person that they were seeking to be identified with. That wasn't the powers that they were seeking to be identified with. And so we're going to pick up with that, and uh, we're going to look at Paul and Silas and their time in prison. So look with me in Acts chapter number uh, 16, and we're going to start with verse number 16. Acts 16, 16. It says, And it came to pass, as we went to prayer, a certain damsel, possessed with a spirit of divination, met us, which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. The same followed Paul and us, and cried, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. And this did she many days, but Paul, being grieved, turned and said to the spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out the same hour. And when her master saw that the hope of their gains was gone, they caught Paul and Silas and drew them into the marketplace unto the rulers and brought them to the magistrates, saying, These men, being Jews, do exceedingly trouble our city and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe, being Romans. And the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. So we'll stop there for right now. And what we find in this, I I laid the foundation, I, I did the background here, showing us that Paul and Silas were exactly where God wanted them to be. God led them to this place. And if you were Paul and Silas and you had went through this ordeal and you had seen these hurdles, these roadblocks, if you had uh, came to the place where you were sitting in a prison in this new place, sitting in a prison, you've been beaten, now you are bound in stocks, wouldn't you start to question God's leading and God's will in your life? Yes. But we find that Paul didn't. And we're going to get into that in just a moment. But before that, I want to go back in just a moment, look at this once again with this uh, woman that was uh, possessed with the spirit of divination. We find that Paul and Silas, their ministry is always, um, it is always hindered, I guess I should say, by Satan. God is, or Satan is not happy whenever God's word is going out. Satan is not happy whenever people are getting saved. Satan is not happy whenever people are seeking God's will and following God's will. And so he is going to try to hinder that any way he can. And so something that we find in this passage is the first way that he is trying to hinder it is by joining up with it, by befriending it. Mm -hmm. Right? 
Satan is trying to befriend it. He is coming along beside of it. And as I said last week, Paul could have said, okay, well, she's speaking the truth. We'll just go ahead and let her speak. But if she would have, or if he would have allowed her to continue speaking, he would have been associated with that. Mm-hmm. And all the people in that area would have said, okay, this Jesus that they're talking about is just another one of our many gods. It's just another uh, incarnation of one of our gods or whatever. And so he would have just been associated with all the rest of them. He would have just been lumped in with that group. Their belief at that time is that whenever someone uh, had lost control, if they were basically mentally ill or if uh, there was some sort of uh, demonic influence in their life, that one of the gods had come down and uh, taken over them. Okay, They looked at it as the gods were speaking through them and so people like this woman were highly revered as being a mouthpiece for the gods. And so this would have been an endorsement of their gods up on Paul and up on his ministry. And Paul didn't need Satan's endorsement. Right. He didn't need Satan's approval. He didn't need to be associated with that. And the lesson for us as Christians is we need to be careful of our associations as well. Because one of the things that Satan is going to try to get us to do is he is going to try to get us to partner with him, to come alongside him. And it's the idea of, uh, uh, we've always heard, if you can't beat them, join them, right? Well, we're going to find out in this in this uh, lesson today that Satan works more along the lines of, if you can't join them, beat them. Okay. And so anyway, he's trying to join up with them. He's trying to yoke up with them and be associated with them. And today within Christianity, uh, or so-called Christianity, there is so much of this uh, friendship between the ways of Satan and the ways of the Lord, of trying to bring together uh, both of these sides, which are like oil and water, and they don't mix. The Bible tells us that friendship with the world is enmity with God. And so Satan says, come on alongside, I'll help you out, I'll be your mouthpiece, I'll get you an audience, people will listen because this woman has been respected and everything. Come alongside of this, and Paul says, completely, resolutely, I want no part of this. I'm not going to be associated with this, I'm going to be separate from this. And as Christians, we have to take this stand as well. As Christians, we need to make sure that we are not trying to use Satan's devices to serve the Savior. It doesn't work that way. We need to make sure that we're not partnering with the devil, whether we think it's going to uh, help us in our uh, ability to be a witness, if we think that uh, a little bit of compromise or a little bit of uh, partnership with the things of this world is going to advance us and advance our cause, that's not the methods in which we use. Now, there are extremes that we can take with this, is there are those who compromise and join hands with the devil, and they try to to somehow reconcile those two, but then there are those who are on the other side who will join hands with nobody, mm-hmm. okay? And we don't want to fall into, fall into either group. We've talked many times about having balance in our, in our, in our Christian lives and our ministries and such. Yeah. And so we need to be careful and make sure that as we are... Uh, serving the Lord, that we are partnering with God's people and that we are uh, standing against the things of the devil. Okay, We can't serve God and the devil at the same time. And so Paul made this uh, strong stand and he says, no, I'll have no part of it. I want nothing to do with it. Uh, The Bible says have nothing to do with the the works of darkness. And that's what Paul was saying. Mm -hmm. 
And so we have to make these decisions in our life. It doesn't mean that we can't be friends with the lost people. Okay. It doesn't mean that we have to somehow be uh, hyper separated and that we have to uh, almost exist in a compound or in a um, monastery or something separated from the world. That's not what we're talking about whenever we're talking about being separated from the things of the devil and things of uh, this world. But we have to draw a line between that which is holy and that which is profane. That which is good, that which is evil. We have to make that distinction, that separation. And Paul does that here. And what is the response whenever Paul does that? Whenever he takes a stand and says, Satan, I'm not going to partner with you. I'm not going to be your friend. I said there a moment ago, if he can't join them, beat them, right? And so this made, uh, made the enemies of Christ upset. It made them mad. And so what they proceeded to do, he uh, cast out this demon out of this girl, and the hopes of their profit, the hopes of their gains was gone. And so essentially uh, what Paul did affected their finances. Right. You want to make an enemy fast, mess with somebody's finances, right? Yeah. And this is what happened. And so the hopes of their gains was gone, and um, Acts chapter 16. But anyway, the hopes of their gains was gone, and um, so they turned against him. And what they ended up uh, saying about him, uh, verse number 20, they brought him to the magistrate saying, these men being Jews do exceedingly trouble our city. They're bringing in... Um, Prejudice, they're bringing in racism there a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. They're Jews. Uh, anti-Semitism has always existed. Yeah. As long as there's been a Jew, there's been people who hated them. Mm-hmm. That's just the way it's been. But anyway, it says, these men do exceeding trouble our city, and the words that are used there are indicating that they're accusing Paul and Silas of inciting a riot. Mm-hmm. They're bringing a riot upon us. They're bringing you know, chaos in our cities. And in Roman colonies and in Roman uh, society, they thought themselves to be the um, uh, more advanced people, and they prided themselves in civility. Mm-hmm. They wanted quiet. They wanted peace. They wanted things to to go in a civil manner. And so one of the biggest charges that you could bring up against these people was that they were uh, breaking the peace, basically. They were uh, inciting riot or incivility. Mm-hmm. And this is the charge that was brought against them. But all they had done was they turned to this girl that had been following them for days and rebuked the demon and cast the demon out of her. That was it. Now, the reason I'm going through this is this connects with our lives as well. We're not going to be throwing out demons. Okay? But in the world which we live in, if we live by Christian principles... And if we preach the gospel message, if we tell people about Jesus, it is going to offend people. Oh, yeah. The Bible tells us that in uh, John chapter 3 that they hate dark, or they hate the light because they are in darkness. If we turn over there, I'm going to go ahead and read it. I would have quoted it, but my, my brain's not working at the moment. Okay. Uh, John chapter number 3, verse 16. It says, For... Or not three, three nineteen. Sorry. It says, and this is the condemnation that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil 
hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. Okay? Paul was not going about inciting violence. He wasn't coming and teaching customs that were wrong for them to receive, but instead he was preaching the gospel. He was preaching the truth. He was liberating the captives, those who were bound by Satan, right? And it was an affront. It was a challenge to their way of life, to their culture, to their darkness, to the wickedness that was in their culture and their society. And they didn't like there being a moral authority. They didn't like there being a God that could tell them what was right and what was wrong. They didn't like the idea that they were sinners and had come short of the glory of God. And we see that in the world today as well. And so as we preach the things that are consistent with God's word, as we hold to morality, as we say uh, some of the, I guess, the hot topics of the day is that marriage is between one man and one woman. That is offensive the culture which we live in. When we say that killing a baby is wrong, that is offensive to the culture that we live in. Whenever we say that God created man and woman and not 50 other genders, that is offensive to the culture which we live in, right? And so these things are consistent with God's word. They're consistent with uh, psychology. They're consistent with biology. They are consistent with the way that God created things, but they are not consistent with our culture and with our society. And whenever the things of God comes against the wickedness that is in this world, whenever the light shines in the darkness, the darkness is offended by it, and the darkness fights back against it. Okay? And so this is what's going on. And so Paul and Silas, because they have stood on the truths of God's word, they haven't attacked anyone, they haven't beaten anyone, they haven't tried to force their beliefs on anyone, they haven't, uh, they haven't done any of these things. They've not levied an attack against Rome. They haven't even talked against Rome. They are simply preaching the word, and all of a sudden they are public enemy number one. Mm-hmm. And they don't give them a chance at a fair trial. They don't <clears throat> give them time to defend themselves. Instead, they immediately, upon hearing this, they are worked up into a frenzy. They are the ones that are causing riot, right? And they strip them off and they beat them with rods. And so they would have, uh, with beating them with these rods, their backs would have been uh, welted and would have been cut open and gashed and bleeding. And it would have been a horrible thing. It wasn't just uh, some little wimpy or... Uh, halfway punishment that they were inflicting on them, but this would have been a painful and gruesome punishment that they were giving to Paul and Silas just for the simple thing of uh, saying something that society wasn't happy with. Okay? And the longer that things go in the world which we live, the more of a reality this will become for Christians. We have had it easy for a long time. We have grown complacent in many ways, But the more wicked society becomes, the harder it will be for us to take a stand as a Christian. We will have to make a decision. We'll have to decide ahead of time whether we are going to stand on the truth or we're going to bow to the pressures of society. Mm -hmm. And lessons like this with Paul is a great encouragement to us that we can trust God and we can stand even in opposition. Okay? And so whenever we look at this passage, they... uh, were beat, they were given to the, the jailer, verse 23, and were charged. Uh, he was charged to keep them safely. And so now the jailer comes into the, to the, the mix, to the passage, okay? And his introduction to these men 
are these men have incited a riot. These men are troublemakers. We have beat them. You make sure to keep a hold of them. Don't let them go. You're responsible for them. And it says, having received such a charge, he put them into the innermost part of the prison and he bound them in stocks. And so his understanding of it is that Paul and Silas were horrible people. Would that be his perception of it? They're horrible people. They're wicked people. I need to keep an eye on these guys. And so he puts them in there and come down to verse number 25. And we'll pick up reading there. And it says, And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises to God. And the prisoners heard them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bands were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So a big change takes place in this passage. He receives them as criminals and they don't behave as criminals, right? If you have been treated this way, you came, you're following God, you're excited to share the gospel, you're excited to see people saved and churches planted and all of these things going out, and God leads you to this place, and you see a couple people saved, and you're following God's will, this woman's aggravating you, you cast the demon out, now all of a sudden you find yourself in jail. You've been beaten, you're bloody, uh, as he's in the stocks, those would have been uh, designed to be painful and uncomfortable, mm -hmm. right? And so he's in this, and he has a choice to make, okay? We can't always control our circumstances, but we can control our response to the circumstances. Right. And so he has a choice to make. Either he can be disgruntled, either he can be uh, angry at God, upset, doubting, complaining, and all of these things, or he can trust God in his circumstance. And he chooses to trust God. And this is a challenge for us because let me tell you, if I would have been in Paul's circumstances, I wouldn't have responded this way. Not unless God gives me an extraordinary uh, uh, dose of grace that I don't see coming, right? Unless God supernaturally works in my life in some way so that I am able to respond appropriately in this, me and my flesh and my normal way of doing things, I would not respond this way. You know, if, if I just have a bad day, if someone cuts me off in traffic, I get upset, let alone this. Yeah. Okay? But as we see Paul and Silas here, Paul always has the gospel in mind. Yeah. Paul always has Christ before him. Right. He has a calling from God. He has the directing of God. He has an assurance that God is doing a work through him and has something for him to do, and he is trusting the process. He's mm -hmm. trusting God to work about all things for his good, even the bad things. We find in... Uh, Philippians chapter 1 and verse number 12, whenever Paul is in prison, and this church that we're talking about here that started from here, more than likely this jailer, Lydia, the demon-possessed girl, these people, some of the inmates, were part of the church that he was writing to in Philippi, mm -hmm. in the book of Philippians, mm -hmm. okay? 
And so he's writing to them later on. Paul is in jail again. This time he's in jail in Rome. It's looking like he's going to be uh, martyred for the faith, okay? And the Philippians are concerned about Paul's well-being. He's, they're concerned about uh, how the gospel is going to be affected by this and whatnot. And Paul says in Philippians 1 and 12 that all of these things have fallen out to me for the furtherance of the gospel. He says, I can look back over my life, and he says, God has used all of even the adverse circumstances, even the bad things he has used for his glory. These things have worked together for the gospel. Now, we looking back on it from our point of view, we can see how God worked it out. But if we can put ourselves in Paul's position, Paul has none of the assurances that we have. Paul doesn't know the things that we know now. He doesn't know about the Philippian jailer becoming uh, being saved. He doesn't know about them releasing him the next day. He doesn't know about his continued uh, ministry efforts. This is still his second missionary journey. He doesn't know there's going to be a third one, right? He doesn't know any of these things. He doesn't know that he's going to write basically half the New Testament, and we're still going to be talking about him 2,000 years later. He doesn't know that. He knows, I tried to serve God, I've been following God, and here I am beaten and bloody and thrown in jail. Mm -hmm. But he determines and he says, what we're going to do is we're going to pray and we're going to praise. Yeah. And that's what he begins doing. And all of the prisoners in that prison are listening and they're wondering what kind of nutcases <laughs> that have been brought into the prison that being put through what they have been put through, how can they sing in prison? Mm -hmm. And that would have an impact, wouldn't it? Okay. And so they're listening to these men. They're trying to figure out, are they crazy or do they have something that we don't? Mm -hmm. And I have no doubt that Paul was witnessing. I have no doubt that he was preaching. I have no doubt he was sharing the gospel with the folks as he was there. I can imagine as the the jailer was leading him back to the back to the darkest, deepest part of that jail, that as he was taking him by the arm and he was wincing from the pain, that Paul was still speaking to this jailer and talking to him about Jesus. And so while he was setting him down on the floor, probably threw him down on the floor, and grabbed his leg and put it into the, the shackles, Paul was sitting there telling him about Jesus. And telling him about how Jesus suffered and died for him. And how he was willing to suffer for the cause of Christ. He said, if Jesus was able to do that for me, I can do this for him. And so he's telling this Philippian jailer, maybe I'm using a little bit of uh, uh, liberty with this. But with knowing Paul and the things that are written of Paul, I have no doubt he was talking to him about Jesus. And he was relating the things that he was going through to what Jesus went through and using this as an opportunity to witness to this jailer. And the jailer just thought this is some, uh, this is some rebel, this is some uh, fringe religionist or whatever. And he probably wasn't paying a whole lot of attention to it. He's just doing his job, uh, putting him in the, the chains, putting him in the prison cell, and he goes about his work, right? But still, the voice of Paul, the voice of Silas is ringing out as they are talking about Jesus, as they are singing about Christ, as they are praying out loud, I'm sure, as they are singing out loud, as they are praising God. And everyone in that prison 
would have been taking note, been paying attention to the things that they were saying and by the attitude in which these men were facing their trial. Okay? For us as Christians, we have to realize that we always have an audience. Yes. We always have an audience. The Lord said that we would be witnesses of him into Judea, Samaria, and to the all uh, to Judea, Samaria, and uttermost parts of the earth, right? Mm-hmm. He says, You shall be witnesses. He didn't say, I want you to be witnesses. He says, You are going to be witnesses. Okay? Mm-hmm. But the question comes, what kind of a witness are we? What is it that our life says about Jesus? Because we are being watched. The old cliche says that uh, you may be the only Bible that some people ever read. Yes. And all of the people in that jail were reading about Jesus in Paul and Silas' life. Yeah, right. And so as we are going through our lives, as we are faced with difficulties, as we are faced with hardships, as we are faced with successes and triumphs, mm-hmm. because there is many people probably that fall to success as they do to failure whenever it comes to Christianity. See, the devil doesn't care how he gets you. If he can give you success, if he can give you everything that you ever dreamed of and cause you to, to uh, turn away from God in that, he's happy to do that as well. Is that not what he did to Jesus? Took him out into the wilderness and he says, all these things will be yours if you bow down to me. It doesn't matter if he has to take everything away from you or if he gives you everything as long as you turn away from God, right? Mm-hmm. And the world is watching and seeing how you go through these things and seeing what your life says about the God you claim to serve. And it's having an impact on them. And so as they're watching Paul and Silas, they're still trying to figure out what they think of him. But it says that at midnight, that there is an earthquake that comes and all of their bands are loosed and all of the gates are open, all the doors are open. Now this is odd, okay? The earthquake didn't bring down the building, but it made their handcuffs fall off. (laughs) Right? Made their shackles fall off. And it wasn't just Paul and Silas's, but it was everyone's. Something that was interesting to me in this passage, though, is Paul and Silas didn't need to be delivered from the prison. They were going to be let go the next day anyway, right? So it wasn't that God was doing this to deliver Paul and Silas. We know that Peter at one time was locked in the prison and the angel came in and smote him on the side and said, get up, Peter, we're leaving. And he let him out, right? Right. And put him outside the city and said, okay, go and preach. Because they would have killed him the next day. But Paul and Silas were going to get turned loose the next day. They didn't need the earthquake. They didn't need the bars to be open. They didn't need to be turned loose. But all of those prisoners... And that jailer needed to see this happen. See, Paul and Silas wasn't in that prison to see a great deliverance happen and to see God bring them out and build their faith and encourage them. They were there for the audience, for the people seeing them go through that circumstance, right? And so at midnight, whenever all of this happened, all the gates or all the doors were open, all the shackles fell off. What's the first thing that happens whenever the, there's a malfunction in the jail and the, the doors come open? People run off, right? If you're in jail and the doors open up, freedom, right? You're getting out of there. But the strange thing that occurs, and this is another miracle in this, 
is that it wasn't just Paul and Silas that stayed back behind being, you know, good Christians and subjecting themselves to the higher powers. Everyone stayed there. And so I don't know, I don't have the answers to this of why they stayed. It could be supernatural. Maybe the Holy Spirit kept them there. Okay? It could be just all of the events of that day held them fast, and they said, I want to see what's going to happen from this. It might be a curiosity. One thing about it is God cared about the life of this jailer. Mm -hmm. He cared about this man's soul, and much of what's going on here is for the sake of this Philippian jailer. And if the people had fled, this man would have been held responsible and he would have lost his life. But God was looking out for him. He was looking out for Paul and Silas and no one escaped the prison. It actually says that the jailer assumed everyone was gone. He woke up out of his sleep, saw the doors open. He said, there's been a jailbreak. Maybe he, maybe he even slept through the earthquake. I don't know. Maybe that's what woke him up. I'm not sure. But he saw that there was a jailbreak, and the way that it worked in that society was if you were put in charge of that person, if you had the responsibility to keep those prisoners, if they escaped, you would pay with your lives. Mm-hmm. And though the Romans prided themselves on civility, they weren't civil whenever it came to punishments. Right. They were cruel. Yeah. And for this man, if he would have faced his uh his supervisors, his his authority that was over him, having abandoned his post or lost his prisoners, they would have beat him severely and then they would have killed him. They may have sent him to the cross and crucified him. Mm-hmm. Okay? They may have. And so he said, rather than to die in shame at the hands of my, my boss, at the hands of the Romans, then I'm just going to take my own life. And so he was ready to commit suicide. And Paul is looking at this man, sees what's going on, and he calls out, and he says, don't hurt yourself. Do thyself no harm. We are all here. Imagine what's going on in the Philippian jailer's mind. He's thinking, there's no way. There's no way that these men are still here with all of the doors open. He calls for a light. He springs in. He sees that it's so. All the people are there. Maybe Paul had already led them to the Lord. Maybe they were all saved at that time. And they're like, okay, we're sitting around. We're having Bible study now. <laughs> I don't know. But he comes in. He sees what's going on. And it says that he falls down at his feet. And that he's trembling. And in verse number 30, he brings them out of the prison. And he says, sirs, that's a, that's a change of uh, attitude toward them, right? Oh, yeah. He's now speaking to them with respect. And he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? This lets us know that he already has an idea, right? He already knows who God is. He's been listening to what Paul's been saying. Paul's been saying, you need to be saved. You need salvation. And he says, okay, I'm ready to accept what you've been preaching. I have seen enough out of you and out of your God to say, I want to be in on that. I need a part of that. Mm -hmm. It could just be as well that he is of course, a pagan, and he's seeing all these things, and he's recognizing this is supernatural, and I have oppressed someone who apparently serves a very important God, and maybe he's just saying, I need my life to be spared because maybe the gods are mad at me. I don't know, but I think it's the first first thing that I said. I think he's been hearing their message. He's responding to it, and he says, what must I do to be saved? And that's where each and every one of us needs to get to before we can ever 
be found, before we can ever be saved, we have to realize that we're lost and that we need salvation. And I think that's one of the hardest things, especially in the culture of the society that we live in, is for people to understand that they are, uh, that they are lost and undone without Christ. Because everyone thinks that they're a good person. There's this idea that God loves everyone. God wouldn't send anyone to hell. I go to church. I, my family has been faithful. I was baptized as a baby, whatever it is. And they think that that's good enough. And they can't see themselves as lost in need of a Savior. This man, just a moment ago, was ready to end his life. And now he is looking to the needs of his soul. He's done a complete turnaround, a complete 180. And he says, I need salvation. And so we see Paul's response to him. And it says, and they said, I guess Paul and, Paul and Silas both. I don't want to forget Silas in there. Verse 31, and they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. So he says, what must I do to be saved? And he says, believe on the one that I've been preaching about. It's not just believe in his existence. It's not just believe that he was a historical figure. Not even just believe that he was God in human form. Not just believing the virgin birth, but believing he is able to save you. That's the difference. And so whenever he says, believe in him, I need salvation, and it is Jesus that is able to save me. And so I am putting my faith and my trust in him for salvation. And it's at that moment that we are born again, when we realize that we are lost and undone, and Jesus is the only answer, and we put our faith and trust in him alone, that is when we are saved. Okay? Throughout Scripture, we find that the only people that uh, are told to believe on the Lord and be saved are those who are under conviction, those who realize they need a Savior. There are a lot of people who say, oh, I believe in Jesus. But he says you need to believe on him as your Savior. What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord. Now at the end of that it says, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. There are many people who will take these passages like this and try to preach household salvation, try to preach infant baptism and stuff like that because it says, as we go forward here, they spake unto him all the words of the Lord and to all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized and he and all his straightway. And when he had brought them into his house, he set meat before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. And so I started saying that uh, a lot of people will use this passage to try to teach uh, false doctrine. False doctrine of infant baptism, false doctrine of household salvation. Okay, Each person must trust upon Christ for themselves. I can't be saved for my family. I can't be saved for anyone else. And it is not through our baptism that we are saved. It is through believing on the Lord. Whenever he says, believe on the Lord uh, Jesus and thou shalt be saved in thy house, the house will be saved the same way by believing on the Lord. Right. Okay, That's what he's saying. It's as simple as that. That the Lord will save whosoever will as long as they believe upon him. Right. So you can be saved as well as your family, but it comes through believing on Christ. So he spake unto them all the words of the Lord, and he spake unto all that were in his house. Right? So he didn't get saved for those who were in his house. They all heard and believed likewise. Verse 33, he took them, 
the man and his household, the same hour of the night, and washed their stripes. Or excuse me, this is sorry. This was the jailer took Paul and Silas and washed their stripes. And it says, and he was baptized, he and all his straightway. So now all of his family, all of his servants, all of his household have been baptized. Okay? And there are those that will teach uh, infant baptism, pedo-baptism, through this verse saying, well, if it was his entire household, surely there were some children, surely there were some babies in his household. Well, you can't build a doctrine off of something that is not expressly stated. Okay? You can't make that kind of an assumption that surely there were babies in the household. Because whenever it says here in verse number 34, it says, and rejoice believing in God with all his house. All of his house believed also. Belief is the basis for salvation. Yes. Do you have something? Okay. Oh, if you have a question, you can ask it. That's why. Okay. Uh, so, um, belief is always the basis for salvation. Yeah. It's not baptism. I can't be saved for someone else. Someone else can't be saved for me. Okay? It is always through belief, and it's belief in Jesus Christ as the only one sufficient to pay for our sins and to forgive our sins and to save our souls. That is the only way of salvation. And so as we come back to Paul in this and see what's going on in Paul's life, Paul has been through a horrific ordeal. But God has used it to bring about the salvation of this whole family, probably several people in the prison, right? And Paul gets a little bit of reassurance, a little bit of confirmation that he has been going the right way all along, right? Mm-hmm. A challenge for us from Paul's reaction in this is I think most of us probably would have, uh, whenever the doors came open, most of us would have ran out. <laughs> if Paul would have ran out at that time, what is it? If he would have ran out, everyone else would have followed. This man would have lost his life. His family would have never been saved, right? Paul would have had to run away from this town, from Roman authorities. The gospel wouldn't have went out into this village or into this city. Uh, None of this would have happened if Paul would have cut and run at the first opportunity that he had. And the reason I bring this out is for us as Christians is so often we're looking to escape our problems. Too often we're looking for the first exit, the first opportunity. Things get difficult, and as soon as there is a door open, we say, I'm going to take this exit. I'm going to get out of this Mm -hmm. as quickly as possible. But what we find with Paul here is he was living intentionally for the cause of Christ, for the sake of the gospel, and he says, I'm going to stay right here. And I'm going to continue in this place, and I'm going to see what God is going to do. It's not right for me to run away from my circumstances. It's not right for me to run away from the problems that I'm in, but I'm going to trust God to work through these situations, through these circumstances, Mm -hmm. through these problems. And as a result, so many great things happened, right? Let's go down to verse number 35. It says, and when it was day, the magistrates sent the sergeants saying, let these men go. 
And the keeper of the prison told this saying to Paul, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Now, therefore, depart and go in peace. But Paul said unto them, they have beaten us openly, uncondemned being Romans, and have cast us into prison. And now do they thrust us out privately? Nay, verily, but let them uh, let them come themselves and fetch us out. And the sergeants told these words unto the magistrates, and they feared when they heard that they were Romans. And they came and besought them and brought them out and desired them to depart out of the city. And they went out of the prison and entered into the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they comforted them and departed. So there's a huge change that takes place here, and it brings up several questions for us. Okay. Uh, the next day, whenever the ones who had beat them come and tell the, the jailer, let them go, Paul says, I'm not going anywhere. They have beaten us and imprisoned us, even though we haven't been tried, even though we haven't been convicted, and we are Romans. That is a key there. Because as Roman citizens, that afforded them certain rights. Okay? And so they couldn't beat a Roman citizen. They had to give them a fair trial. They couldn't do any of these things that they had done. And they also couldn't kick them out of a colony or out of a province of Rome because they had rights as citizens. So the question that comes up with that is why didn't Paul say something sooner? If I was getting ready to be beat and I knew that I was protected by my civil rights, <laughs> being a Roman citizen, I would say, hold on for a second, you're about to make a mistake, buddy. If you beat me, you're breaking the law. It's going to be your job. Right? I think I would have said something then. I would. And there are other times in which he did. Why didn't he this time? Anyone got any ideas? I think I think that uh, if we look at the scriptures we are considering this morning, mm -hmm. you discover that everything that happened here happened in a sequence. Mm -hmm. The first thing I take note of is that they were arrested, they were jailed for what they believed in. Mm -hmm. And the church was praying on their behalf, and there was praise singing, mm -hmm. singing praises. And that was the first thing I noticed. Uh, I just wanted to look at the power of praise, mm -hmm. right? And the praising God. And that praise singing, you know, brought about the presence of the Holy Spirit, mm -hmm. who is the third person mm -hmm. in Trinity. Yeah. But going back just a minute. Yeah, let me going back just a minute though. Before they ever got to prison, yeah. before they ever sang praises, before they were praying at midnight, before the jails rattled or any of this, whenever they were first being accused of riot, when they were first being accused of teaching things that were contrary to uh the Roman government, yeah. Paul could have said right then, I'm a Roman citizen, and none of those things would have happened. So what kept him from saying that and avoiding the whole rest of this passage. I think because it was 
that was not even important. Mm-hmm. If it was important, Apostle Paul would have. Apostle Paul was. He has given his life to Jesus. Mm-hmm. He has, you know, released himself to the Holy Spirit to take control. Mm-hmm. Right from the day of Pentecost, mm-hmm. the Holy Spirit came into being, mm-hmm. came to force, and mm-hmm. the church, you know, assumed a revival. Mm-hmm. A revival like them, and the wind of revival has been blowing from chapter 1 of Acts mm-hmm. up to the last chapter of Acts of the Apostles. Mm-hmm. So that is what I would say. And that is what is most important. Mm-hmm. It's very important. Yeah. And that is what we should actually take home as mm-hmm. believers of today. Mm-hmm. That the Holy Spirit we cannot push in to the background. It's not, it's mm-hmm. not a force. It's right. a person. Right. It's a person. And we must treat him as a person, mm-hmm. as believers. Mm-hmm. Once you push in with the back of your hand, and it departs from you, you are in trouble. Mm-hmm. Look at the life of uh, who was that judge that uh, misbehaved in the Old Testament, in the book of Judges, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Who taught the Holy Spirit was still in him, whereas the Holy Spirit already departed, mm-hmm. you know? So this, these are the things. So I'm just looking at the power of praise, mm-hmm. matter of fact. Look at the wall of Jericho coming down, the cost of praises mm-hmm. and sound, right? So this mm-hmm. is having a sequence. So Apostle will not bother himself to begin to tell them that I'm a Roman is not important. Mm-hmm. To him, it's not an important issue. Now you have allowed us to go, don't bring us and lose us in the presence of the old public. Mm-hmm. Don't do it behind. Yeah. So he was speaking because he has been filled with Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. It's not just a mere being, it's a special species. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think a lot of this is, and what I'm careful about whenever we start talking about the Holy Spirit, is we can make it like uh, almost spooky. Yeah. And the Holy Spirit's not spooky. Yeah, I actually like what he said there. He, mm-hmm. One of the parts that I got is the Holy Spirit is not a force. Mm-hmm. Because so many times we allow culture and TV and all that junk to take over what our mind thinks of how things work. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. That just I just really like that. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. And and while he's not a force, he is a person, and he right. and he indwells in us. And oftentimes he is, uh, as I said, it's not spooky. A lot of times he is shaping our circumstances. He's shaping our thoughts. He's changing our desires and different things like that, and causing things to happen. Oftentimes when we're not even aware of it. Yeah, okay. Exactly. And so with Paul's circumstance here, he. Um, he doesn't bring up the fact that he is a Roman citizen. We don't know for sure if this was intentional or not, or if maybe it was just something that through the course of events, things happened so quickly, he didn't bring it out. Maybe he tried to bring it out, no one would listen. Mm -hmm. But there are other circumstances whenever Paul is being arrested and he says, oh, by the way, I'm a Roman, and it changes everything, and he uses that to protect himself. But I want to challenge one thing here, and this is something I can't necessarily back up, but I think it's interesting. Who else was with Paul and Silas at this time? You mean being with them in the jail or surrounding? Who was with them whenever they were first arrested? Who was it that was associated with Paul and Silas in Philippi? Uh, Lydia. Lydia. Lydia? Yeah. Okay. Timothy? Luke, right? 
several others, right? If they would have spoke up and said, we're Romans, we have no indication that Timothy or Luke or Lydia or several of the other ones weren't. Mm -hmm. And so it could have been very easy for them to say, we're Romans, and them say, well, you guys aren't. Right? And so I wonder if part of the reason, part of Paul's thinking in this, because we find through the, the way that this works out, that God uses this mightily to protect his church and his people in the end. Yeah. We don't see it as they're going through it, but I wonder if Paul kept that silent because he knew if he said something, then all of their rage and all of their passion that was focused on him would now be focused on others that were around him. I wonder if, in a manner of speaking, Paul was taking the bullet for him. Mm. Okay? And I think that very much could be the, the case because Paul was constantly looking out both for the goodness of the God or the good of the gospel and for those who were under him. He says, I will uh, most gladly spend and be spent. He says, I'm willing to give my life for the people that I'm ministering to. And so I wonder if that's what he has done. And so whenever he is in prison, whenever he's been beaten, he is now ready to be released. And they come and say, okay, you can send Paul on his way. And Paul says, hold on for a minute. You have beaten me and imprisoned me publicly. And now you're wanting to privately and secretly send me away. And if Paul just says, okay, I'm out of prison. I'm going on my way. What effect does that have on his converts? What, what effect does that have on the church? They've seen him be beat and sent away privately. Now they live in fear, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. But this whole situation flips the tables, if you will. And we find that at the end of it, it isn't the church that's living in fear. It is the government. Right. <laughs> and God uses this whole circumstance to turn that around because Paul is willing to spend and be spent Paul is willing to suffer for the cause of Christ. He is willing to go through whatever he needs to for God to be glorified and the gospel to go forth and for the believers to grow, right? And so anyway, whenever he says, they have beaten me openly, publicly, being a Roman citizen, immediately those who had ordered him to be beaten, he's got their attention. Because if he would take his rights, if he would have taken the law that uh, protected him and would have went to the authorities and said, hey, your guys over here beat a Roman citizen without a trial, without being condemned, and then threw him out of the city, then those guys would have died. They would have died. And so whenever they hear this, they say, oh, no, we messed up. And now they come apologetically to Paul. And they come to Paul and say, we are so sorry. We didn't know. We're sorry we mistreated you. How can we make this up to you? In addition to that, they do not command or demand or order him to leave. They request that he leaves because they cannot expel a Roman citizen from a Roman colony. Right. Paul doesn't have to go anywhere. So now Paul is the one that's in charge. 
and the people are reassured. The believers are strengthened in their faith. And whenever Paul is let go, the people in Philippi no longer have to worry about those government leaders because of what Paul has done. They can now grow peacefully. They can grow confidently because of what God has already done through Paul and for them. Okay? And so the way that we live our lives, the things that we go through have an effect for the cause of Christ and for the gospel. Okay? And Paul had lots of rights that he could have exercised, but he was selective in which rights he exercised, and when he exercised those, all because of the expediency of the gospel. Okay? This is something that has been definitely in in the forefront of our attention over the past years with, with COVID and with the, the social agenda and all these different things uh, that the government is pushing. And for us as Christians, we have certain rights and we have to determine how we are going to claim those rights and when we're going to claim those rights. Right. Because we see clearly in the scriptures that Paul sometimes was, Sometimes wasn't. He was selective about it. Mm -hmm. Even whenever they desired him to leave, he didn't come and say, I have every right to be here. I'm going to stay as long as I want to stay. He bowed out gracefully and he said, okay, I don't want to cause a stink. I don't want to cause an uproar. I will leave. He leaves Luke behind and Luke does the work at the church and disciples and, and grows the people there. Mm -hmm. And he's there for some time. But Paul goes ahead and leaves even though he has every right to stay. For us as Christians, we have to filter everything through the cause of Christ. Yeah. Is my actions going to further the gospel? Is it going to hinder the gospel? And we need to determine and decide ahead of time, I'm going to do the things that are going to promote the gospel, that's going to see people grow, that's going to see people come to Christ, even if sometimes it means me setting on my rights even if it means me being mistreated, even if it means me going through some times of discomfort, I need to do everything with the cause of Christ before my eyes. Because I'm representing him, and people are looking on me, people are determining what they believe about my God based on the way I represent him as his child. Right? And so all the way through this passage, we find that Paul has represented Christ well. Yes, he went through some uncomfortable things. Yes, he was abused and mistreated. But through it all, God used it, and it changed and transformed the lives of many people. We talked about this, I think, last week, that in the end, the church at Philippi, the one that was established through these circumstances, was the one that was the greatest encouragement and the greatest blessing to Apostle Paul. They were the ones that were constantly refreshing him. They were the ones that were constantly helping him. But there was certainly some birth pains in bringing it about in the beginning. And so in a way, this church of Philippi was kind of like his baby. It was He had a, a lot of trouble bringing it into the world. It was a, a painful experience. But in the end, it was a great joy. Right. right? And so this is what happened in, in this with uh, Apostle Paul. Uh, very last thing I want to say, and then I'll, I, I kind of skipped over this a minute ago, and I, I don't want to leave this passage without bringing this out. 
But if you look back in verse number 33, after the Philippian jailer believes after he is saved, you see immediate changes that take place in him. You can imagine a jailer was a pretty hard guy. He would have been a pretty hard guy. But it says he took them the same hour of the night and he washed their stripes. He's used to putting stripes on them, not washing their stripes. So you look at the way that he is caring. And so now as a Christian, it is manifesting in his life. He is serving others. And so he washed their stripes. He was baptized. That's obedience. You are, uh, the Bible tells us that we are to be saved. After we say we are to be baptized as a testimony to uh, show outwardly what happened inwardly, right? right? He was baptized. He in all his straight way, we see the effect that it had on those who were around him. It says he brought them into his own house. Can you imagine? Okay, women for just a minute. Imagine your husband brings home a couple prisoners. You know, if your husband works at the jail, you do not want him bringing his work home with him. Okay, but anyway, he brought them to his house and he set meat before them. He is feeding them of his own food. We see generosity. And it says, and rejoiced, believing in God with all of his house. We see joy. And so these are the outworkings. This is the fruit of salvation. He was serving. He was obedient. He was generous. He was joyful because of what God had done in his heart, because of the Holy Spirit that had came into his life. And this is just the beginning for this Philippian jailer. But it shows us why Paul did what he did, because he had received Christ, yeah. and Christ was working through him the very same things that we see in seed form in the Philippian jailer, we see in a major way in Paul's life. Mm -hmm. And so I desire for those things to be seen in my life as well. I don't want to prioritize my comfort and my health and my safety over others and over the cause of Christ. Okay. Does anyone have anything to add to this before we close up? Yes, in the course of your teaching, I, I took something that's so inspiring that as believers, we have an audience. Mm -hmm. No two way about that. I remind me of a Baptist inner that <coughs> I love so much. Let others see Jesus in you. Mm -hmm. He said, your life is like a book. Mm -hmm. People are reading it through and through. What does it tell you about Jesus? Yeah. There's another one that says, is your life a channel of blessing? Mm -hmm. Does others see Jesus in you? Does your life draw them to Christ or away from Christ? Mm -hmm. We have to ponder about these things. Yeah. It's not just a come to church for donkey years. The most important thing is that we are truly transformed. And people see Jesus through us. That is a problem of society. People don't want to hear Jesus. Look at the jailer. Thank God. The Holy Spirit did marvelous things in his life. Before he got home, the Holy Spirit has prepared his family. My own mind. Mm -hmm. So that when he brings, you know, prisoners, they will receive them. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. God says, not by might, not by power, but by the Holy Spirit save the Lord. Mm -hmm. So yeah, the Holy Spirit was at work all the way around through there. He was transforming. He was changing. Even the things that Paul did, he could not do it of his own self. He could not do it of his own flesh. 
And so don't don't misunderstand me as I'm talking about this and saying that we need to be willing to put ourselves aside for the sake of the gospel. You're not going to be able to do that just because you desire to do it. It's going to take a walk with Christ. It's going to take the Holy Spirit doing a work in your heart and dwelling in you and working through you for your before you're ever able to do that. Okay. I think this is also very uh, individual. It depends on each person mm-hmm. because you always have to evaluate when you are influencing others and when the others are influencing you. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's fine. It's individual. Mm-hmm. When you are influencing other people, but the key thing is that let your life be pure. Mm-hmm. Let your life be transparent. Mm-hmm. There's no schism about it. No pretense about it. If you see that you are genuinely living a life of Jesus, mm-hmm. they will have no choice mm-hmm. that to confess with Jesus. Yeah. That's that's my thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anything else? Okay, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and we'll take a short break, and we'll come back for preaching service. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your many blessings. We do thank you for this time that we've had in your word. We just pray, Lord, that you'd bless it. Help us, Lord, to see from the example of Paul and from this uh, Philippian jailer, Lord, the way that you work in our lives and through us, Lord, and help us prioritize you and prioritize uh, your word and uh, your work over our own our own desires, our own uh, comforts, Lord, and allow you to do what only you can do because that is the only thing that's going to have a lasting impact. We thank you so much for all that you do and all you're going to do for us. We do love you. And always we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.